For another surgical perspective on early breast cancer, I met with Dr. Pat Borgen. We began our conversation by commenting on a surgical procedure that is gaining increasing attention. The hot button item right now is the total skin sparing mastectomy or the nipple sparing mastectomy. And there's been an explosion of small to medium size series recently where groups have begun to explore the next step in cosmetic mastectomies. We're doing them in the risk-reducing mastectomy setting routinely. We're not doing them in the setting of cancer yet. About a month ago, Varanasi published a series of 1,000 nipple-sparing mastectomies randomized to get external beam intraoperative radiation therapy versus nothing and his results were impressive. What's the technical issues? What exactly is done in the procedure? You're leaving the entire envelope of the breast, and so your incision is small. We use fiber optic retraction to ensure that the removal of all the breast tissue is complete. And then you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. You're taking as much of the major lactiferous ducts out of the nipple as you can without compromising the blood supply to the skin of the nipple. And so... You're trying to leave a very thin flap of nipple skin without having the nipple necrose. There are two benefits. One is the obvious cosmetic benefit of having the native nipple in place. You've also eliminated a procedure or two with nipple reconstruction. But what's most interesting about this is that these patients have more sensation in the skin flaps than with a conventional mastectomy that removes the nipple. We don't really understand this completely. There is something about the peripheral nerves in the skin and the synapses at the nipple, which gives you some backstream or upstream sensitivity. So women who've had a nipple sparing will tell you, I have sensation over 50, 60, 70% of my skin flaps. And that's an advantage. Now this series by Veronese, this was invasive breast cancer? This was invasive breast cancer. And how do you go about doing the reconstruction? Most of our patients have tissue expanders placed and then implant reconstruction. The operation doesn't work well with a large totic breast, so that requiring something like a tram flap is pretty uncommon in these patients. So most of them have implant reconstruction. And you yourself are only doing it in non-cancer mastectomies? Yes, What's the status of this in terms of moving it into people with breast cancer? It's a great question. I think that there certainly is going to be a place for this in women with small cancers away from the nipple-areolar complex who, for whatever reason, maybe BRCA heterozygosity or personal choice, choose a mastectomy. So I do think there's going to be a role for this down the road This is going to be challenging and controversial because it will never lend itself to a randomized clinical trial. The differences in local recurrence rates are too small. You would need thousands and thousands of patients, and there's not going to be any survival advantage or disadvantage. And so this is going to be an area where we're going to have to rely on combined meta-analyses of series rather than randomized trials. Now, why would you be comfortable doing it in a preventive situation and not comfortable with cancer? I think it's part of an evolution. We started 10 years ago doing it in the risk-reducing setting. In November of 06, we published the first 200 patients who had this with four- to five-year follow-up. 
We had no recurrences in the skin of the nipple. So I think that as our experience grows, I think we'll evolve in that direction. And when you say recurrences, you're really talking about primaries, I guess. Right, exactly. And do we know to what extent this removes breast tissue or how much residual breast tissue might be left? I think that that's part of the intellectual debate here. Surgeons leave breast tissue when they do mastectomies. In fact, 80% of breast cancers occur in the upper outer quadrant of the breast. We know that we leave microscopic breast tissue in the upper outer quadrant of the breast. Estimates range from 2 to 5%. The nipple is an unusual and uncommon site of end-organ carcinogenesis. And so removing the ducts from the lumen of the nipple should achieve the same local regional prevention rate or breast cancer prevention rate as removing or radiating the nipple. So I think that surgeons who argue that it's unsafe to leave the skin of the nipple should actually be removing the skin in the upper outer quadrant of the breast. To what extent is this procedure being utilized right now in the United States? Large groups, Memorial, MD Anderson, Cleveland Clinic, have all reported series of nipple sparing mastectomies. And so I think that similar to what we saw with sentinel node biopsy, the major centers are testing the waters a little bit right now. I don't think it's being done on the community level yet. And is this pretty much all preventive surgery across the United States, or are there people doing it for people with cancer? I think both. I think that there are certainly people doing it for patients with small in situ or invasive cancers away from the nipple areolar complex. So when you speak to surgeons in general practice, which I'm sure you do all the time, what are some of the common questions they ask you? I think that what's interesting is that the questions have remained pretty much the same over the past five to seven years. What is a surgical margin? What do you accept as a surgical margin? Getting tired of that one. Yep. What's the answer? The answer is it depends. To tell you the truth, again, there never has been and there never will be a trial of surgical margins. And so we've got to really use empiric evidence. I think that the important thing for the general surgeon practicing to understand is that a number on a path report for a margin is not meaningful. If the pathologist says you have a one millimeter margin, that could be a single focus of DCIS, which I would accept, or it could be a whole field front of DCIS, which I would not accept. And so really, it's the volume of the disease at the edge that predicts whether you're leaving cancer behind. What's really useful in DCIS is to look at the ratio of slides that contain DCIS to the total number of slides that are looked at. If your pathologist says you have DCIS on 17 out of 18 slides, you have a positive margin. We're not that good. If it's 3 out of 17, that's a different. So margins have always been a surrogate for the adequacy of resection. So what else do they ask you? So sentinel node biopsy continues to evolve. I think that the questions about micrometastatic disease and sentinel nodes comes up quite often. The role of completion axillary node dissection is a very, very common question. The extent, level one, level two, level three, of axillary dissection is a very common question. And again, I think that that's still data in evolution. I think that we would all agree that isolated tumor cells are likely not to be biologically significant. 
However, small deposits of morphologically cancerous cells are likely to have an impact on prognosis. So I think that the general surgical world in general has accepted the fact that the breast drains as a single anatomic unit to isolated nodes. This is important because it means that if you have two cancers in two quadrants, mapping is going to work and be accurate. It means that if you have a large cancer, mapping is going to work and be accurate. And so I think that this fundamental concept is important. It was described 120 years ago by a number of Italian anatomists. We just didn't believe it, so we had to reinvent the wheel ourselves. But it's very clear that the breast drains to the axilla. If you get the dye in the correct breast, you'll get the correct sentinel lymph node. What about number of sentinel nodes? What number do you average, and what number do you think should be the average? Yeah, that's a great question. We looked at the first 10,000 sentinel node mapping procedures we did, and our average was 2.5 sentinel nodes per patient per case. And that was constant whether we injected the tracer the day before or the morning of surgery. I think that means, again, it's an anatomic reality. I think that somewhere between two and three is the correct number of sentinel nodes. When I see a case where I get eight or ten sentinel nodes, that's a failed mapping procedure. Either the tracer has degenerated and broken down into small pieces, that's a patient where I'm really not going to trust a sentinel node alone. Thankfully, that's becoming more and more rare as our nuclear medicine doctors gain more experience with the mapping procedure. Is that something that's happened to you? It does happen. The tracer is prepared by humans running tracer through filter at certain temperatures, and any human error can cause tracer abnormality. So it definitely can happen. I also personally have been moving away from blue dye and have really been using tracer alone. We have a just under 2% rate of major allergic reactions to the blue dye. We have no allergic reactions to the radionucleotide. The percentage of cases where the tracer would miss a cancerous node and the blue dye would find it in the same patient is less than 1% to 2%. So if your node positive rate is 20%, the blue dye is helping you 1% of 20%. It's not worth it. Also, the blue dye cost has gone up and up and up. So we really are pretty much using strictly tracer right now. What about partial breast irradiation? Anything new there? I got an email from Mike Baum who said that they're getting close to being able to report the target study of intraoperative therapy. Of course, he doesn't know what it's going to show, but where are we with PBI? I've been very interested in PBI since the beginning. I was the chief resident when Robert Kusky put brachycatheters in patients at the Ochsner Clinic in New Orleans. And we had a group of patients from South America who really couldn't stay in the States for seven or eight weeks for radiation. And so in a few patients who refused mastectomy, we used afterloading catheters. And Kusky has gone on to really perfect and refine that technology. There's no question that what Varanasi taught us 15 years ago, that local recurrences happen in or near the tumor bed, is correct. So I think that in selected patients... I think that this is going to be a terrific advance. The NSABP trial 
looking at three different types of partial breast radiation, brachycatheters versus the mammocyte balloon versus 3D conformal external beam radiation therapy is moving along and sort of lumbering along. The NSABP had to change the entrance criteria because patients who would have the least benefit from radiation were being included routinely, so older patients with very small tumors and very large margins. We are doing some 3D conformal external beam radiation therapy in selected patients. We're also having a good experience with the Canadian protocol of accelerated whole breast radiation. So instead of 30 fractions, 15 fractions. In my current practice in Brooklyn, New York, all of my patients work. And so all of our treatments have to consider that so that patients are missing the least amount of work. And so we are doing some accelerated partial breast and whole breast radiation. What about intraoperative therapies? Is that being done? I guess it's just on a trial right now. Back when I was at Memorial, we did a pilot study of single-fraction intraoperative radiation therapy with Mike Zalewski as the lead radiation oncologist, and Virgilio Sacchini was the surgeon on the study. I love Mike. We work with him a lot in prostate. Yeah, Mike is a visionary radiation oncologist, and along with his chairman, Zvi Fuchs, worked out the mathematics and the physics on single-fraction radiation. So we did a series of over 100 patients where we did a wide local excision, intraoperative margin assessment, then placed a HAM, H-A-M-M, afterloader, which allowed us to treat the immediate vicinity to a dose of about 2,000 rads, return to the operating room, remove the applicator, and close. We have had no local recurrences, but there are two caveats. One is, is that this was a group of older patients with smaller tumors in whom the additional benefit of radiation is a little less clear. What concerns me about it is that the long-term scarring and fibrosis in the breast is prodigious. And so I am not happy down the road seeing these patients five and six years out. They have a brick in the breast, Hmm. and they form very pleomorphic, suspicious-looking calcifications. So I think that the body does not recover as well from a single fraction of radiation. And that's something we've known for 30 or 40 years. I think it needed to be sort of reconfirmed. So I'm not doing any single fraction intraoperative radiation therapy now. Interesting. Let's talk about some of your cases. I thought this one, the 35-year-old one, was fascinating. Can you talk about her? So the first one is a very recent case of mine. It's actually a 45-year-old woman with a strong family history of premenopausal breast cancer. She felt some densities in the upper outer quadrant of the left breast. And on imaging, she had multiple one-centimeter nodules throughout the left breast. We core biopsied under ultrasound the three that were the furthest apart. They all returned a diagnosis of well to moderately differentiated invasive duct carcinoma, estrogen receptor positive, HER2 negative, FISH negative, Because of her family history and her Ashkenazi background, we tested her for BRCA mutation, and she, in fact, had a BRCA2 mutation. Because of that, she elected to undergo a bilateral mastectomy and a left sentinel node biopsy and a laparoscopic bilateral salpingo oophorectomy. 
Her sentinel nodes were absolutely negative on H&E and on IHC. What we found pathologically was interesting. There were at least 10 or 12 one-centimeter well-differentiated invasive cancers in the breast. The question that arose was, what's the role of systemic chemotherapy in this patient? So there are two fundamental debates here. One is, is it still correct to take the largest tumor size and ignore the others, as the staging system has recommended for the past 17 staging systems? Fundamentally, it doesn't make sense. If you had 101 centimeter cancers in the breast, clearly that patient would have a higher risk of systemic disease. So what we did was we sent several of the tumors for Oncotype DX testing, and... I predict low. Very, very low. Hmm. My gestalt on this patient was that I was leaning very heavily towards chemotherapy. I thought that the tumor burden in her breast placed her at increased risk for systemic spread. When I tried to calculate in my head the surface area of these 10 or 12 one-centimeter cancers, I really felt at her young age that she would benefit from chemotherapy. She was in the very low recurrence range on Oncotype DX testing, and all three were the same. Her and the other breast was okay? Completely so weird. benign. I mean, was, biologically, what does that mean? I absolutely agree with you. Sometimes my colleagues ask me if it's boring treating one disease, and I wish it was boring. <laughs> it's, just, it's just not. Strange. So her gestalt from the beginning, of course, was I'm going to have my ovaries out. I'll go on an aromatase inhibitor, but I'm not going to take chemo. So the Oncotype DX testing came back with a 10-year recurrence rate of about 7%. Assuming it was one lesion, though. Right, right? exactly. Yeah. So we did not give her chemotherapy. And frankly, I don't think she was going to accept it. This was one of the cases that I got the most help from Oncotype DX. It's really fascinating. You know, another issue that's come out with Oncotype recently, and there was a presentation at San Antonio, got published simultaneously in Lancet Oncology, was looking at patients with node-positive tumors. What are your thoughts about that? It looks like it's kind of playing out the same way. The relapse rate's still pretty high, but in the low recurrence score, it doesn't get any lower if you give them chemo. Right. I'm a huge fan. I think that 20 years ago, when I was practicing with Peter Rosen, he used to always say that our fundamental mistake was assuming that breast cancer was one disease, and it's not. It's a family of diseases, and it's a complicated family of diseases. Prior to Peter, Frank Adair had published the 30-year follow-up data on 1,200 patients who had had radical mastectomy and nothing else, no tamoxifen, no chemo. And in every group of node-positive patients, except one, multiple level three nodes, they had 30-year survivors among the node-positive group. That was the most compelling evidence that positive nodes does not equal systemic spread. And so, to me, that was the first proof in principle 
of the fact that we can still subdivide tumors better than just by nodal status. And so I'm enthusiastic about that. Now, what are the situations where you'll think about Ocotype in a patient with node-positive tumors? What I've been hearing about from a lot of medical oncologists is the older patient with one or two positive nodes, although I'm not sure why it wouldn't apply to the younger patient with multiple nodes. I guess people just get a little bit nervous about that. How do you think it through? Probably the same way. I think that with enhanced pathologic analysis of sentinel nodes, we're seeing some patients with small amounts of disease where there is debate about a 0.2 millimeter MET or a 1 millimeter MET. I think it's going to be unbelievably helpful in those cases. I think there are also patients where there may be other concerns about chemotherapy, the older patient with toxicities. I also think that it's really all about disease subsetting. And I think that we can't have two flavors, node negative and node positive. We can't. And so probably the thing that we're not doing with Oncotype DX testing right now is using it to upstage the 4 and 5 millimeter cancers that are node negative. We're not really sending those off for Oncotype DX. I think it's another interesting question. There are certainly a small percentage of high-grade sub-centimeter cancers that have systemic risk potential. So far, we've really not been doing that in our practice. What about the mammoprint assay? Can you explain what that is, and are you using it all? We have been one of the beta test sites for mammoprint. The principle of mammoprint, obviously, is similar to the principle of Oncotype DX. It is a much larger gene panel Oncotype uses 17 actual test genes and a handful of housekeeping genes. There are 65 or 70 actual test genes on the mammoprint. The biggest difference in the reporting of the results is that it is dichotomized with mammoprint into low risk and high risk. You either love that or you hate it. As opposed to Oncotype, which is a continuous variable. That's exactly right. Some clinicians have expressed frustration that many of their patients fall into the intermediate range with Oncotype DX. With Mammoprint, you get a report that says low risk or high risk. It's hard for me to dichotomize anything in breast cancer. And so I'm currently much more comfortable with the continuous variable of Oncotype DX. I guess there also is the issue of fresh tissue. There is, since it's essentially an RNA assay, and RNA is very fragile, Right now, tissue collection is happening in the operating theater during surgery, and that can be inconvenient, whereas with Oncotype, we're sending archived specimens. Another issue about Oncotype gets into just measuring ER and HER2, now you know two critical markers that the oncologist really needs in order to decide what to do. And, you know, these are measured in the Oncotype assay. Any thoughts in terms of where we might be heading in terms of ER and HER2 testing? I always feel kind of nervous that we might be missing some people with ER or HER2 positivity. Yeah. When I opened up our cancer center in Brooklyn, we set up our own in-house immunohistochemistry lab. It was amazingly reassuring to get the data back from Oncotype DX that matched ours. So I agree with you. I think that the more we achieve some sort of a national standard for both ERPR and HER2-NU, the better our patients are going to be. 
Now, I was noticing this lady has a BRCA2 mutation, and yet her tumor's ER positive. I'm trying to remember, is it BRCA2 or BRCA1 where they're usually triple negative? BRCA1, much more commonly ER negative, much more commonly triple negative. Patients don't fit the molds that we think we've created. She's younger than most BRCA2 patients. The average age of cancer for BRCA1 is about 45. BRCA2 is about 62. BRCA2 cancers in every way look much more like sporadic cancers than BRCA1 cancers do. So you're right. Her cancer, if I was going to guess, based on her age, I would have guessed BRCA1. I'm curious about your perspective on management of HER2-positive breast cancer. Obviously, now the last few years, we've seen a lot of exciting data on adjuvant trastuzumab and pretty encouraging findings from the neoadjuvant setting. Yeah, I think that it's the best example we have to date of targeted therapy. And back when I was at Memorial, we did some of the very earliest studies of what became known as trastuzumab. It was then called C4D4, some string of numbers. And I remember there was a patient who had tumor on cuirass encasing her chest, and she qualified for a trial dose. And within about two months was clinically NED, and in about six months was pathologically NED. I think she may still be taking Herceptin today, and any doctor who suggests that she stop it, she fires. So to me, it's we're finally moving away from the shotgun approach to treating cancers to a much smarter approach. So I think this evolution has been exciting and fun to watch. It's interesting. In metastatic disease, there used to be this concept that you keep the trastuzumab going, you know, indefinitely, you know, maybe switch the chemo. And we never had any clinical trial evidence to support it. A lot of people from outside the U.S. would criticize the docs. And finally, there have now been a couple studies showing that that actually works. Right. I was intrigued by the report from San Antonio in December about the group of patients who had progressed on Herceptin who got lapatinib with the Herceptin and had a response. Amazing. It is amazing. And it previously been seen with the oral chemo agent, capecitabine, same thing. People progressing on trastuzumab, they kept it going even though they were getting worse and added in the capecitabine, and they did better than just getting the capecitabine alone. So kind of reminds me a little bit what they do in prostate cancer, sort of continuous androgen deprivation. Right. And I guess also we have to keep in mind that there are patients who develop relapses in spite of adjuvant trastuzumab. So there are trials out there. Are you participating? I guess the two major ones are the BETH study that's looking at the anti-VEGF agent bevacizumab with trastuzumab and chemo. And then the other one, the ALTO trial, looking at trastuzumab, chemo, and lapatinib, which you just mentioned. We're on the latter trial, but I agree with you. I think that When you think about some of the fundamental differences between, say, breast cancer and ovarian cancer, we can hit an ovarian cancer with a chemotherapeutic agent, get a response, have a relapse, use the same agent, get a response, and maybe we're headed towards that in subsets of breast cancer with more targeted therapies. That would be pretty exciting. Let's talk about your 55-year-old woman. In 2009, I saw a 55-year-old woman with a two-centimeter high-grade cancer just below the skin of the right breast, the upper outer quadrant. The tumor was estrogen receptor positive and HER2 negative. And there was 
a small amount of erythema of the skin directly over the cancer. This proved to be, on biopsy, not only a high-grade invasive duct cancer, but there were foci of tumor cells in subdermal lymphatics. Her extensive disease workup on PET scan was negative. So this is kind of like the pathology of inflammatory breast cancer? Well, I think that's exactly the issue. What is inflammatory breast cancer? And I think that there are two different types of inflammatory breast cancer. There's the whole breast getting erythematous and forming podorange with or without a primary underlying cancer. And then there's this type, which is really a collision of a primary with skin locally. And I think the prognosis is vastly different between the two. Primary inflammatory breast cancer, as you know, has a very guarded prognosis. I don't think this type of local inflammatory does. Her EOD workup was negative. Her MRI was clear. She received dose-dense anthracycline-based chemo followed by Taxol. She had a complete clinical and a complete MRI response. We did a quadrant resection of the breast, and she proved to have a complete pathologic response. Now, why did she get neoadjuvant therapy and the lesion wasn't that big? Because of the fixation to the skin, because of the question of staging, is this a true T4 breast cancer? Is this a true stage 3 breast cancer, which I thought it was? The debate that ensued at our tumor board was because the cancer had collided with the skin, was she still a breast conservation candidate? And I felt very strongly that she was. She received whole breast radiation therapy. She's on an aromatase inhibitor now and has done well. Uh, Recent MRI was clear. So I think this case illustrates that all so-called inflammatory breast cancers are not created equal, and we need to keep them in separate boxes. We were talking before about sentinel node biopsy. What about sentinel node biopsy in patients who are getting neoadjuvant therapy? There's a big debate about timing. Right. I think that's a fascinating story because every group that has looked at the accuracy of sentinel node biopsy post-chemo has reported a 10% false negative rate. Some groups see that as a small false negative rate, and some groups see it as a high false negative rate. I think that the answer is in the middle. We're now doing high-resolution ultrasound analysis of the axilla. We're identifying as many of the node positives up front as we can. For patients with a, say, 4-centimeter invasive duct carcinoma who's going to get neoadjuvant chemo, who has a clinically negative axilla and an ultrasound-negative axilla, Because I'm putting deep venous access ports in virtually all those patients, I will do a sentinel node in those patients. A significant percentage of them are node negative, and you can leave their axilla alone when you treat the primary. So I tend to favor in those patients timing of the sentinel node prior to the chemotherapy. However, doing the math on the downside risk suggests that there's a pretty low risk if you accept that 20% of these patients have positive nodes, and the false negative rate is 10%, you really are going to miss 1% to 2%, which is probably within the line of everything else we do in medicine. My own bias is that I would rather do it before.